Ever wondered why television shows used to be square before widescreen? Or why the film industry is based out of Hollywood? That's ahead today on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Uh, today on the show, we're going to be continuing with part two of our look at the early history of the film industry. In case you haven't listened to part one yet, you might want to click over and do that, as we'll be picking up right where we left off. Don't worry, I'll wait. All right, now before we get started, I should say that up to this point, uh, we've largely focused on the American film industry, and while it pains me to do so, uh, that's where we're going to be basically staying for this episode as well. Um, there are some fascinating things happening in the teens and 20s in film outside of America, uh, particularly with the surrealist films of Salvador Dali and Luis Buñuel in France, and the early Soviet films of Sergei Eisenstein. But those really deserve their own treatment, and it would also make this episode ridiculously long. So we're primarily going to be talking about the American industry here. So when we last left off, we were talking about the formation of the Motion Picture Patents Company, or MPPC, by Thomas Edison in 1908, uh, though the MPPC doesn't fully take effect until January of 1909. Remember that Edison's kinetograph and kinetoscope machines were among the earliest motion picture cameras and projectors, and that many of the subsequent cameras that came to the market were direct responses, or knockoffs, of Edison's machine. Edison's response, you'll recall, was usually to sue for patent infringement. In addition to lawsuits, Edison also frequently just bought out the competition, and it was in this way that he eventually acquired the rights to the Latham Loop, the invention which introduces a loop into the film reel uh, that keeps it from jamming in the projector by relieving tension on the film strip, um, something I talked about in part one. And he bought several other camera innovations as well. However, Edison does not own all of the patent rights to film camera technology, and so he eventually spearheads the formation of the Motion Picture Patents Company as a means of reducing or controlling competition in the industry. Under the MPPC, Edison gathered all the major motion picture firms that held important camera or projector patents uh, into one organization, and the idea was that through the MPPC, all the companies would kind of um, share their patent rights and engage in a sort of mutually assured benefit and destruction. Edison further solidified the MPPC's virtual monopoly on the film industry by negotiating an exclusive contract with Eastman Kodak, basically the sole supplier of motion picture film stock in the United States, who agreed to sell only to MPPC members. These two moves, the closing ranks of camera and projector patents, and the exclusivity contract with Kodak, were designed to shut out independent filmmakers. Now, Edison's reply to the inevitable protests by these independent film companies was, well, let them join the MPPC, which incidentally was not terribly cheap or easy to join, and it required sacrificing your independence. Now, the MPPC did a couple of things. First, it allowed its members to effectively control their relationship with film exchanges. Remember that this is still the age of the Nickelodeon, which is already going into decline, and in order to keep audiences returning, Nickelodeons had to change out their films several times a week, or even daily. Buying films, only to show them a few times, was prohibitively expensive, and so very quickly film exchanges grew up, which are kind of like a, a video rental store for movie theaters. 
Film exchanges allowed the theater or Nickelodeon owner to pay a membership fee and then rent films from a sort of centralized warehouse. The newer the film, the more expensive it was, and even after one showing, the price of a film could drop significantly. Audiences were that dependent on having new and fresh content. So the formation of the MPPC allows the filmmakers to exercise greater control over the film distributors by forcing exchanges to pay a weekly maintenance fee just to have the right to show MPPC company films. And it's worth noting at this point that um, films were sold by the foot for most of this early period, and a single reel of film could be anywhere from several hundred feet to about a thousand feet long. In fact, um, just right around a thousand feet is the standard length for a reel. Anything shorter than that is, is sort of a, sh a short feature. Uh, you generally don't have things shorter than about 700 feet. One of the other things that the MPPC is able to do is create some standards for the film industry. Remember that in the early days of competing projection systems, cameras and projectors weren't all interchangeable, so some cameras recorded on different film sizes, for example. With the creation of the MPPC, these distinctions began to disappear completely. The 35mm film originally used by Edison and his assistant, William Dixon, was the official MPPC standard. Perhaps more importantly, because of the adoption of the 35mm standard, aspect ratio also became standardized. Aspect ratio is the ratio of picture width to height, and when Dixon and Edison were inventing the kinetograph and scope, they had chosen to shoot their film in a 4-3 aspect ratio, with the picture on the strip being about 24mm wide and 18mm high. With Edison's domination of the MPPC, which led to the MPPC being nicknamed the Trust or the Edison Trust, he was also able to impose the 4-3 ratio as a new industry standard, with only slight modification um, that we'll talk about later in the episode. The almost square 4-3 ratio dominated in film for almost 60 years, and it would last in television until the introduction of widescreen and high-def TV in the late 1980s. As I mentioned in part one of this series, the MPPC's total domination of the film industry did not last all that long. Despite Edison's considerable efforts, he even went so far as to create a kind of spy network to report back on what the independent filmmakers were doing. The exclusivity contract with Eastman Kodak only lasted a couple of years, after which Kodak renegotiated and started selling to indie filmmakers. The next blow came in 1912, when the MPPC lost the rights to the Latham Loop in a decision by a fantastically named judge, Learned Hand, uh, against a suit brought by the Independent Moving Pictures Company, or IMP, uh, commonly called IMP. Eventually, the MPPC fell victim to antitrust legislation, specifically the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act, in federal court in 1915, and following a three-year appeals process, was forcefully dismantled in 1918. But by the time the MPPC was dismantled, it had long since lost control over the film industry, which was in a period of dramatic change. Seeking to geographically remove themselves from the center of the MPPC's control, which was uh, New York and New Jersey, though a couple of MPPC companies were based in Chicago, uh, many independent filmmakers relocated further south and west, moving into places like Texas and Florida before landing finally in Southern California. There they found conditions which were incredibly amenable to filmmaking, particularly the amount of sunlight. 
This may seem like an odd consideration today, but filmmaking in the first two decades of the 20th century relied primarily upon natural sunlight to fill a scene, as artificial lights were generally too weak to do so. Even interior scenes were filmed in studios with glass roofs, and so the plentiful sunshine of Southern California was ideal for filming, particularly during winter months, and allowed studios to meet the massive turnout rate necessary to compete in Nickelodeon's and early movie theaters. Add to this the fact that the area around Los Angeles has a diverse geography. You have uh, mountains and beaches, forests and deserts, all within relative close proximity of one another, and thus it's easy to film a variety of exterior scenes. And it becomes clear why this becomes the new destination for the emerging film studios. But the nature of the movies themselves were also starting to change. In Europe, studios began producing films that were multiple reels in length, particularly as part of a movement known as film d'art. Uh, this was basically the filming of stage plays, and while they only enjoyed limited success in the United States, uh, Film d'art uh, helped push the American industry toward more long-form films. Already the industry was headed in that direction because of popular demand for more narrative films rather than sort of the series of short films common in most Nickelodeons. Now, feature originally meant any film that was more than one reel long, but over the decade of the 19-teens, it comes to mean the primary film that audiences were coming to the theater to see, to distinguish it from uh, shorter films which were also being shown as part of the package. Once the idea of multi-reel films begins to catch on, it also meant the death of the small, cramped, and uncomfortable Nickelodeon and the rise of the movie palace or movie theater. If audiences were to sit for any length of time to enjoy a production, uh, they had to be comfortable, so padded seats and public restrooms became the norm. Following World War I, as America moved into the Roaring Twenties, theaters became architectural marvels, with some venues incorporating Egyptian, Greco-Roman, other exotic art forms into their designs, as well as the emerging Art Deco style. In addition to longer and longer films and better venues, audiences also began to become attached to particular performers. In the early days of film production, actors were usually uncredited or received no billing as part of the performance, which is how the MPPC, generally, wanted it, with one or two exceptions. People were supposed to go see a film because it was a biograph or a vitagraph film, not because of the actors in it. And to some degree, acting in films was considered second-rate to acting in the theater, largely because the film was silent, it was a popular medium, and it didn't require line delivery on the part of the actor. Since early films rarely used close-ups of actors, they developed a kind of melodramatic gestural language that could easily communicate the action or narrative of the story beyond what was displayed on the intertitle cards. Even before the MPPC began to crumble in 1913, this system began to change, and production companies began to collect a stable of actors attached to their studio. They began to shoot more and more close-ups of actors, which facilitated facial recognition by audiences. The flip side of this, uh, sort of emerging star culture, was the issue of typecasting. Studios wanted an actor who was instantly recognizable as a hero, a villain, the love interest, the virginal ingenue, the temptuous vixen, and so some actors and actresses tended to get cast in the same roles over and over again because they had a face that was easily recognizable as a particular character. In addition to close-ups, the way that films were shot began to change particularly with the way that films were edited. Editors today sometimes have a reputation as second directors of a film because they piece together the best shots and, in effect, they create the actual narrative of the film. 
Even in the 19-teens, the way that stories were told on film was still evolving, uh, and the idea of simultaneous action was just beginning to emerge. At the beginning of the period, if a film wanted to show action that was happening simultaneously inside and outside a building, it would essentially present the same scene twice, once depicting events going on inside, and then the same scene from the perspective of those outside. The innovation that emerged in this period was that of parallel cutting, where the editor would cut back and forth between the inside and the outside of the building so as to indicate that these events were happening at the same time. Today we take this kind of editing for granted, but it was something that was fundamentally new in uh, the 19-teens. It did, however, take time for audiences to adjust to some of these new editing techniques because they were so used to these long sort of scenes. Some early critics actually derided the cutting technique as jumpy and confusing. Um, you kind of have to wonder what they would think of a, a Michael Bay film today. But eventually the new techniques won out because of the narrative license that it gave to the filmmakers. Speaking of editing, this would be a good time to talk about the role of women and minorities in these early decades of film. Now, obviously, women were employed as actors, but beyond that role, their involvement in the new industry was relatively confined. There were only a few female directors, most notably uh, Lois Weber, who was a contemporary of D.W. Griffith. In 1917, she even created her own production company, Lois Weber Productions. Uh, one of her most innovative contributions to filmmaking was the use of the split-screen technique. Uh, which she first used on her 1913 film Suspense in order to show simultaneous action. She was also the first director of a Tarzan movie, producing Tarzan of the Apes in 1918. But her greatest film, at least in my opinion, uh, probably because it hits a little too close to home, is her 1921 production The Blot, which is about the problems surrounding an underpaid college professor and uh, one of his troublemaker trust fund students, who is eventually changed by his love for the professor's daughter and actively campaigns to have his rich father, who is a trustee of the university, do something about the poor living and wage conditions of the professor and his family. All I can say is I have taught hundreds of students in my career and this has never happened to me. Maybe I'm not doing it right. Hmm. But the number of female directors, as I say, remains very small. One area, though, in which women dominated, perhaps surprisingly, was that of cutting or editing. For most of movie history, film editing has been an incredibly laborious and tedious process, as you have to physically cut the film and splice it back together to create the final cut. Uh, this is why the term cut is used in movies. When you cut to a scene, the editor has to physically cut the film and tape samples from two reels together in order to create the transition. It was not at all glamorous work and, well, therefore, largely given over to women. Here, several women were able to make their mark on the industry and on film. While few details uh, survive about these women who were early film editors, and actually a lot of historical work remains to be done in this area, we do know about a few of them. Perhaps the best-known editor from this period was Margaret Booth, who served as the editor for D.W. Griffith and eventually Louis B. Mayer, who you may remember from our Academy Awards podcast, uh, forms the third letter in Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, or MGM, and would be the man responsible for the creation of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Uh, and she continued on at MGM after Mayer Studios merged with Metro-Goldwyn Pictures in 1924. Uh, editing is actually an area which still today has a proportionally larger number of women in the film industry, uh, though they are distinctly in the minority as well as in all other areas of production. 
And some female editors have even won acclaim in their relationships with particular directors. Uh, one thinks particularly of Martin Scorsese's long-working relationship with Thelma Schoonmacher, uh, who has edited every Scorsese film since Raging Bull in 1980. The early decades of film were also an important time for African-American filmmakers and actors. Uh, there were some early attempts by uh, some African-Americans to create black production studios, uh, most notably the Lincoln Motion Picture Company in 1916, which was created to make films specifically for black audiences. Uh, that said, the company had to employ white directors. Well, I say had to. Um, they actually turned down one black director, one of the few black directors out there, uh, Oscar Michaud, who was a novelist turned director. He actually has a very long career uh, in Hollywood making films specifically for black audiences. Uh, in the case of the Lincoln uh, Motion Picture Company and several other uh, African-American studios uh, which arise in the 19-teens and 20s, the African-American audience was just too small to support sustained film production, and there weren't enough white people going to see these films, and so these companies were relatively short-lived. Uh, the Lincoln Motion Picture Company closes its doors in 1921 after just five years uh, in production. Although minority studios struggled in the new film economy, many new studios succeeded, in part because of World War I. While the American domestic market was thirsty for new films, it did face some competition from European markets. Since movies were still silent, it was incredibly easy to adapt a foreign film for English-speaking audiences. Only the title cards had to be changed. The MPPC had initially sought to limit distribution of foreign films in the United States, but what really made a difference was the war. While European studios did continue some production after the start of World War I in 1914, it was massively scaled back, particularly when it became apparent that the war was not going to be over quickly. This enabled American studios, who were unaffected because the United States did not enter the war until 1917, they could export their films into the European markets. The boom in the American film industry continued well after the war, and the late teens and early 20s saw the creation of a number of studios that still exist today. I mentioned IMP earlier in the podcast, and its owner, Carl Lemley, uh, will eventually create Universal Pictures. And in 1915, he built a 250-acre studio lot in the San Fernando Valley that became Universal City. William Fox, who was the son of Jewish-Hungarian immigrants, founded the Fox Film Corporation in 1915, moving production to L.A. in 1917, uh, though it's not until 1935 that his company merges with 20th Century Productions to create 20th Century Fox. In 1904, Albert, Harry, Jack, and Sam Warner, uh, four brothers, buy a Nickelodeon in Youngstown, Ohio. Eventually, they move to California, begin setting up production there, and in 1923, they found Warner Brothers Pictures. And these are just a few examples. Columbia, RKO, MGM, and Paramount all trace their founding to this period. The 1920s were the absolute pinnacle of American silent film production, and business was booming. It should be added that studios didn't just control movie production, they also controlled distribution. Several studios directly emerged from theater owners who were fed up with the MPPC's direct control of the industry, and so when they formed production companies, it was to create films for distribution in their own theaters. Thus, it was fairly standard practice in the 19-teens and 20s for Paramount Films, for example, to be screened in a Paramount Theater, or Warner Films in a Warner Theater. This vertical integration persisted until it was forcibly disbanded by order of the Supreme Court in the 1940s as a result of U.S. versus Paramount. 
After 1927, however, the golden age of silent cinema came to a swift end with the introduction of sound. For years, movies had actually been accompanied by music, uh, sometimes by a live band or by a solo piano, other times by a recording. A few theaters even had automated organs for this purpose. But truly, synchronous sound was never used, even though the technology for it existed since about, I think, 1924? It wasn't until the Warner Brothers production, The Jazz Singer, which only used synchronous sound for a few scenes in the film, that the use of sound entered the industry. Many studios felt like sound was a gimmick, and only reluctantly began to incorporate sound into their productions. The introduction of a soundtrack written onto the film strip had a significant impact on production overall. Uh, Sound-enabled cameras were, for a while, large and clunky, and difficult to maneuver and transport. Having the audio track recorded on the film strip made editing much more difficult, as cutting the film also meant cutting the sound. It also led to a slight alteration of the film aspect ratio, because the picture had to shrink to accommodate the introduction of the track onto the film. This led to the creation of the Academy Ratio, which is slightly less wide than the 4-3 aspect ratio invented by Edison, though it was still close enough that the term 4-3 uh, was generally used. An unintended consequence, though, of the introduction of sound was the demise of the silent actor. Remember that silent actors were melodramatic and expressive. They were chosen for their looks and their facial expressions. But many did not have good speaking voices. Some weren't even American, but were immigrants who had come to the United States to make it in the booming movie industry. With the introduction of sound, some actors just could not make that transition, and they were booted out of the industry to make room for younger, newer, and more capable talent. But though these actors declined, other aspects of film production flourished. Indeed, the 1920s inaugurated a new, vertically integrated megalithic era of American film production, with national megastars, elaborate productions, and no end of controversy about the morality of film. This was the age of the studio. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.